God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by blanketing the nation in darkness. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 10, now in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out with your hand toward the sky, so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses reached out with his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be left behind. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, so that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Be careful. Do not see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, You have spoken correctly. I shall never see your face again. The ancient Egyptians associated the sun with the highest of their gods, those responsible for life and creation. The gods associated with the sun were most commonly Re, Amun, and Horus, who were sometimes merged variously as Amun Re or Re Horakti. Richard Wilkinson has described these gods thusly. The sun god Re was arguably Egypt's most important deity. Though possibly not as old as the falcon god Horus, Re was an ancient deity who coalesced with many other solar and cosmic gods through time while retaining his own position. Re was a universal deity who acted within the heavens, earth, and underworld. In addition, the god was a prime element in most Egyptian creation myths and also acted as divine father and protector of the king. The name Re is simply the Egyptian word for the sun. And while the blazing solar orb was considered to be the visible body of Re, it was also seen as his independent eye, giving rise to expressions such as Re in the midst of his eye, though the eye could also be a fierce manifestation of one of a number of goddesses, and as the vessel of his daily journey. According to the cosmogenic ideas developed in Heliopolis and at other sites, the sun god Re was the supreme creator who emerged from the primeval waters at the beginning of time to create every aspect of the world. In Egyptian mythology, the creation of kingship and social order was synchronous with the creation of the world. Re was thus the first king, as well as the creator of kingship. The god ruled on earth over his creation until, according to legend, he became old. Then Re departed to the heavens, where he continued to rule and also acted as the ancestor of the king of Egypt. Amun, one of the most important gods of ancient Egypt. He appears as a local god of the Theban region from at least the 12th dynasty. Within a century and a half, Amun gradually displaced the old god of that region, Mantu, and the ascendancy of the Theban kings in the Middle and New Kingdom times eventually propelled him, as the combined Amun-Re, to the position of supreme god of the Egyptian pantheon. The Greek writer Plutarch quotes the Egyptian chronicler Manetho as stating that Amun meant that which is concealed or invisible, and the god was also commonly given epithets such as mysterious of form, suggesting an essentially imperceptible nature, and it is possible that his name originally referred to Amun as the invisible power of the wind. In addition to being a member of the Ogdoad, 
a group of eight primeval deities worshipped in Hermopolis. Amun was worshipped as Amun Kematef, or Amun who has, competed, who has completed his moment, a creator god in the form of a snake that renewed itself. In the Book of the Dead, Amun is called the eldest of the gods of the eastern sky, an epithet reflecting both his primeval character and solar-associated nature, and an 18th dynasty hymn to Amun preserved on a stella in the British Museum refers to Amun when he rises as Harakti, directly fusing the hidden one with the visible sun. When he was syncretized with the god Re as the composite Amun-Re, Amun took on a number of aspects of the solar deity. Unlike deities who were thought to personify the sky, earth, or some other limited region or phenomenon, Amun was held to be a universal god who, at least in his developed theology, permeated the cosmos and all it contained. Horus. Horus was one of the earliest Egyptian deities. Horus appears in many forms, and his mythology is one of the most extensive of all of Egypt's deities. Sky God. This is the original form of Horus, as Lord of the Sky, which preceded all others. The Egyptian word Her, from which the god's name is derived, means the one on high, or the distant one, in reference to the soaring flight of the hunting falcon, if not a reference to the solar aspect of the god. Mythologically, the god was imagined as a celestial falcon, whose right eye was the sun and left eye the moon. The speckled feathers of his breast were probably the stars and his wings the sky, with their downsweep producing the winds. As a natural outgrowth of his role as cosmic sky god, Horus was also venerated more specifically as a solar god. The pyramid texts specifically refer to Horus in solar terms as god of the east, and he appeared in at least three forms in this guise. As Harakti, or Horus of the Two Horizons, Horus was the god of the rising and setting sun, but more particularly the god of the east and the sunrise. And in the pyramid texts, the, de the deceased king is said to be reborn in the eastern sky as Harakti. Eventually, Harakti was drawn into the sun cult of Heliopolis and fused with its solar god as Re Harakti. As Bedeti, or he of the Bedet, Horus was the hawk-winged sun disk, which seems to incorporate the idea of the passage of the sun through the sky. As Horemaket, or Horus in the horizon, Horus was visualized as a sun god in falcon or leonine form. By New Kingdom times, the great Sphinx of Giza, originally a representation of the fourth dynasty king Khafre, was interpreted as an image of Horemhaket. Horus also came to be worshipped as the son of Osiris and the goddess Isis, though either this god was originally a separate deity, with whom the ancient falcon god was fused, or the falcon deity was incorporated into the Osirian family in a very different form as a divine infant. Horus was directly linked with the kingship of Egypt, both in his falcon falconiform aspect and as son of Isis. As the son of Isis and Osiris, Horus was also the mythical heir to the kingship of Egypt, and many stories surrounding his struggle to gain and hold kingship from the usurper Set detail this aspect of the god's role. The gods Re, Amun, and Horus were all variously connected with the sun and the moon, and their connection to initial creation and to the pharaoh were prominent in the religious beliefs of the ancient Egyptians. The plague of darkness was an assault on these pretended gods, but what exactly did God do to them? The Egyptians would have been familiar with solar eclipses and sandstorms, so darkness during the day was not unprecedented in this part of the world. In the case of sandstorms, long periods of darkness would not have been uncommon either. 
Even ash from a catastrophic volcanic eruption would not have been unheard of. For instance, the eruption of Mount Thera in Greece, which some believe destroyed the Minoan civilization, occurred sometime between 1620 and 1500 BC, which would have been within living memory of the biblical dates of the Exodus. The plague of darkness God sent upon Egypt was different. The two Hebrew phrases used to describe it are Ve'yamesh Choshek and Choshek Afelah. Ve'yamesh Choshek means literally a darkness that causes groping, and Choshek Afelah has been translated by commentator John I. Durham as eerie darkness or the darkness of calamity, a phrase used later in scripture to describe the darkness associated with the day of the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy might help us to get a better sense of what was happening. Nearly 40 years after these events, when Moses was delivering his last message to the people of Israel before they began the conquest of the land of Canaan, Moses warned the people that if they rebelled against God by breaking the covenant they had made with him, calamity would come upon them. In describing the curses that would come, Moses prophesied the following in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 27 to 29. Moses said this, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, the festering rash, and with scabies from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with insanity, blindness, and with confusion of mind, and you will be groping about at noon, just as a person who is blind gropes in the darkness, and you will not be successful in your ways, but you will only be oppressed and robbed all the time, with no one to save you. In this passage in Deuteronomy, the association of the covenant curses with the plagues of Egypt speaks of blindness and confusion which would cause the people to grope in darkness. Something similar to this has been described in the description of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 as well. When the men of the city of Sodom attempted to assault the angels God had sent to survey the city, God struck the men with blindness, which left them unable to find the door to Lot's house where the angels had taken refuge. Though the word groping does not occur in the story, the blinded men are described as having become weary of trying to find the door. When these descriptions are brought together with the confession in Exodus chapter 10 that the Israelites were unaffected by this plague, the possibility that the plague of darkness was a plague of confusion and blindness becomes increasingly interesting. It is possible, and in my view likely, that the plague of darkness was a plague of blindness and madness, denying the Egyptians both the light of sight and the light of reason. When God sent this devastating plague upon the ancient Egyptians, he was challenging the Egyptian gods of the sun, the gods of life, creation, reason, and watchfulness, to restore what God had taken. If Re, or a moon, or Horus, was a god, then certainly one of them could restore the sight and reason of the Egyptian people. When the darkness remained unabated for three days, Pharaoh again called for Moses and agreed to make his greatest concession yet, allowing all the people to go, but keeping their livestock in Egypt. When Moses refused to go without the animals, Pharaoh's heart again was hardened and he refused to let the people go. Which god of the West is akin to the ancient Egyptian gods of the sun? These were the gods of the gods of ancient Egypt. Only Osiris, the god of the underworld, shared their status. They were seen as the sources of the other gods, the sources of life and order and civilization. In the West today, these gods are worshipped in the guise of the Western god of love. It's important to remind ourselves that the Western god of love is not to be confused with the term love in the Christian Bible. We've discussed what the Christian scriptures mean by the term love and its association with the Hebrew concept of chesed in episodes 8 and 9. 
the Western God of love is a God of adoration, of intense affection, a God of worship, both of worshiping and of being worshiped. This is a God that demands the celebration of personal uniqueness, of individuality, of personal achievements, of personal tastes, and of personal value. The Western God of love desires unconditional adoration, and its disciples demand the same. Why is this God to be associated with the ancient Egyptian gods of the sun? Just as the gods of the sun were the chief gods of Egypt, often depicted as the sources of all other gods, the God of love is the chief god of the West, under which all other gods have been subordinated. Even more, of all the false gods of the West, the Western God of love has proven to be one of the more alluring for followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. Why? The Western God of love has often appeared to be compatible with the teachings of Scripture. Many a follower of Jesus has become an idolater by worshiping the Western God of love in Jesus' name. Perhaps we can see both the allure and the deception of this false god by looking at Paul's instructions to the Christians of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13. through 13. Paul wrote this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, namely that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let's celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the greedy and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to leave the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is a sexually immoral person, or a greedy person, or an idolater, or is verbally abusive, or habitually drunk, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge those outside? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Worshippers of the Western God of love insist that to love a person, one must adore them, one must celebrate them, one must affirm their preferences, their desires, and their decisions. The Western God of love demands unconditional affirmation and unconditional adoration. Tolerance was as important to the Romans, particularly in religious matters, as it is to contemporary Western cultures. But Paul's worship of Jesus conflicted with his culture and with our own as can be seen in his response here to issues present in the churches of Corinth. The presenting problem in Corinth was that of sexual immorality. In the original Greek language of the New Testament, the word translated sexual immorality is porneia. Porneia can be a difficult word to translate depending on the context. It had various uses in the wider Greek-speaking culture of Paul's day. In the Greek translation of the First Testament, it was most often used with reference to prostitution. Obviously, though, that's not how Paul was using it in this context. 
The word porneia in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, often serves as a shorthand way of referring to sexual behavior that falls outside of the teachings of the covenant of Sinai. In this case, the porneia in question was that of a man entering into a sexual relationship with his stepmother. This is not a subject that Jesus ever discussed overtly, but it is a behavior that had long been prohibited by the Sinai covenant. In the midst of a series of prohibitions against intimate relations with near family members, Leviticus 18 verse 8 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. It has become common today to hear Christians profess that our freedom from the covenant of Sinai by faith in Jesus means that the teachings of God to the Israelites are no longer relevant for followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul seems to resist that interpretation. Of course, it was Paul who said in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, For all who are of works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous one will live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, the person who performs them will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And yet it was this same Paul who chastised the Corinthian Christians for overlooking a fellow believer who had disregarded the teachings of God in the covenant of Sinai. It may seem as though Paul was speaking out of both sides of his mouth, decrying the law on one hand and commending obedience to it on the other. But this is not the case. In Galatians, Paul was confronting the belief that all followers of Jesus remained under the covenantal agreement that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Paul's insistence in Galatians is that a new covenant, a new agreement, has been established between God and all of humanity in Christ Jesus. And both Jewish people and Gentile people enter into that new agreement by faith in Jesus. But clearly for Paul, the covenant of Sinai, though not binding on the people of God in the wake of Jesus, still reveals the will and character of God to us. Though the aspects of the covenant of Sinai that Jesus fulfilled, like that of sacrifices for sin, were no longer part of the new covenant, the moral and ethical revelations of Sinai were still instructive for the followers of Jesus. Even these, of course, had to be read through Jesus' interpretations and clarifications. But Paul still understood the teachings of Moses as the beginning points of God's revelation to humanity with respect to the restraining of human sinfulness. As Paul proceeded to teach in Galatians chapter 3, now in verse 19, Why the law then? It was added on account of the violations, having been ordered through angels at the hand of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has confined everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. For Paul, the teachings of the covenant of Sinai were not meant to impart life, nor were they intended as the means by which Israel would receive the promises of Abraham. The teachings of the covenant of Sinai were meant to restrain sin and to confine human proclivities until the coming of Jesus. Therefore, if the teachings of the covenant were meant to restrain sin, then though they are not a means to life, they do continue to delineate the boundaries within which God intends human to live. When God first created the creation was a formless void. God spoke into the chaos and separated light from darkness, water from water, 
and land from sea. Then God filled those things he had separated. He created sun, moon, and stars. He filled the sky with flying creatures and the sea with life. And he brought life to the land. So long as light remains separated from darkness, water from water, and land from sea, life flourishes. But if these primal forces break through the boundaries God has set, chaos ensues. This breaking of boundaries with respect to the waters has been demonstrated in the story of the Great Flood in the days of Noah. Sexuality, too, has its proper place and intended use. We discussed this context in Episode 3, The God of Sex. For Paul, the covenant of Sinai restrained human sinfulness by describing behaviors that were outside of the context God intended for human sexuality. Even in the new covenant of Jesus, these teachings were instructive. And the Corinthians were doing more than ignoring such behaviors. They were celebrating them. Look at second, look at verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Your boasting, this is verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? One way of understanding the teachings of Jesus on judgment is simply never to do it. This is the reading required by worshipers of the Western God of love. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, records that Jesus taught the following. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. On another occasion, recollected for us in John chapter 8, verses 10 through 11a, when Jesus was confronted with the opportunity to condemn a woman caught in adultery, we might recall that his response to her was, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. It's possible to conclude from these words, alienated from their context, that the kind of love for our neighbors and enemies that Jesus was commending was a type of non-judgmental tolerance. Maybe humans don't have the integrity, the insight, or the discernment to judge properly. Perhaps we should leave judgment along with any actions for or against sinful behaviors to God. Perhaps the responsibility of Christians is simply to focus on our own personal lives and lifestyles and to care for all comers. Or maybe because Jesus set us free from the condemnation of the law, the moral requirements taught by Moses and the prophets of Israel are now null and void. It's impossible for us to reconstruct what precisely led the Corinthians to ignore this particular situation or what led them to be proud of their tolerance. What is more certain is Paul's insistence that the Corinthian communities had corrupted their growth in and testimony to the kingdom of God by ignoring a behavior inconsistent with the boundaries God has demarcated for human sexual behavior. It is not the responsibility of any human to condemn another. That is at the heart of Jesus' teachings. Condemnation belongs to God alone. Only Jesus has been given the authority to condemn. However, because we have been given by the prophets and apostles examples of behaviors that are incompatible with God's intention for us and for creation, we must separate ourselves from those things God calls us to leave behind as we follow Jesus. This man had chosen not to separate himself from this behavior, so Paul's advice to the Corinthians was to no longer consider, consider him a fellow follower of Jesus. Paul continued, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with greedy and, or with the greedy and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is a sexually immoral person, 
or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. It is natural and self-affirming to define ourselves by our desires, by our passions, by our predilections. How many times have we soothed ourselves by confessing, I have a short temper, or that's just my sense of humor, or that's what attracts me? As natural and comforting as such confessions may be, as we discussed in episode 8, The God of Self, the core confession of the gospel is that followers of Jesus deny ourselves daily. Take up our crosses and follow Jesus. The way of Jesus is a way of self-denial, as opposed to self-affirmation. And it is at this point that the God of love reveals its antipathy for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. Paul was not condemning this man for being evil. Paul confessed on many occasions that he himself had engaged in wicked behavior. Paul was accusing this man of having divided loyalties. His behavior revealed where his faith had been placed. If his faith had been in Jesus, then he would have denied himself and allowed his behavior to be restrained by the teachings of God. His refusal to restrain himself in this way did not reveal that he was worse than other people. What it revealed was that he did not wish to walk in the way of Jesus. Paul's concern was that the Corinthian Christians' affirmation of this man's behavior was leaving him with a misapprehension that would leave him deceived. For Paul, this man had to know the truth about his loyalties if he were to be capable of making an informed decision. By leaving him in the dark, the Christians of Corinth were leaving him to find out about the true state of his faith only when he stood before Jesus at the final judgment. The Western God of love prefers an appealing lie to a hurtful truth. The purpose of the Western God of love is to keep people happy, comfortable, at ease, and in relationship with their neighbors. The Western God of love is a God of getting along, a God of adoring others, and a God who requires that we ourselves be adored and affirmed by others. Whether we're headed to a sheer cliff or to a pleasant meadow, the Western God of love requires us to bless the moment without respect to the moments that may or may not follow. Of course, we must be careful that we don't expect people to be clean and free of all rebelliousness before we invite them into our fellowship. What is most important are our intentions and our submission to Jesus. The peril is with those who profess to follow Jesus while at the same time refusing to be restrained by the moral and ethical revelations of the prophets and apostles. In these cases, God requires behavior inconsistent with that demanded by the Western God of love. God does not commend us to be unkind or cruel or abusive or crass or shaming. Rather, Paul has exhorted us to hold each other to our confessions of faith in Jesus alone. We must never give those who wish to follow Jesus the misimpression that we find who we are most truly in our desires, or in our cultures, or in our peculiar histories, or in our natures. God calls us to deny what has defined us, and to follow him into a new self-definition, a self defined by the God who created us, and his purposes for creation and for humanity, hidden with Christ in God. The Western God of love is a God of peace of adoration, of acceptance, of affirmation, and many Christians today assume it to be indistinguishable from Jesus. I've done my best to reveal this God to be an idol. I've done what I am able to describe the true Jesus we are called to worship. 
but I am aware that many will remain steadfast in their assumption that God himself is a God of peace, of adoration, of acceptance, of affirmation. So that such people will know the error of their thinking and the idolatry of their worship, God himself will assault the Western God of love in the days to come. The plague of darkness against the ancient Egyptians was a plague of fumbling in the dark, a plague of confusion, a plague of chaos. Already God has allowed our reason to become clouded and our emotions to become more turbulent. But as the Lord had me speak some months ago, in the days to come the way is made for you into the waters. Logic and reason are taken. Wisdom is darkened and order is turned back. Light is darkness and darkness is light. Heaven and earth are turned against you and no rescue will come for your transgressions. When hope is within reach, it will depart from you. When peace is at hand, strife will erupt. When respite arrives, despair will dispel it. So shall it be until you repent of your rebellions and ask my faithful ones to intercede on your behalf. The Lord has determined to do this for our reclamation, people of God. We have been deceived by the false gods of the West. As on the foothills of Sinai, Israel worshipped the golden calf in Yahweh's name. So we have worshipped the God of love in Jesus' name. And the Lord continued in what he had me say some months ago. Am I a human that I desire the death of the wicked? Am I not the crucified Lord who desires that the lost be found and the rebel be reconciled? Come to me in repentance and I will hear. Turn from your selfishness and lustful desires and I will make you whole again. Can life persist without my spirit? Can orderliness be maintained without my faithfulness? Can a covenant be upheld without my chesed? This is the way of things, people of the earth, and they can be no other. Do not persist in your rebellions. The day of the Lord is at hand. When we witness the assault of these false gods of the West, we will know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, is the one true God of all creation, and that beside him there is no other. May he heal our blindness with these plagues, and may those who have sought the Lord find him as he draws near to us.